great. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 19. All right, last week we kicked off a new series uh, that is going to bring us all the way to Easter um, at the end of March. And we have called it the beginning of the end because we are following the last portion of Jesus' ministry as he is essentially moving closer to his death. All right, and this last week we were laughing. We, we have a group that um, is looking at going to The Chosen today. It's in the theater down in St. Cloud. If you're interested in that, come talk to Aaron or I afterwards. There's, there's a group that's headed down there. But uh, she was showing me the trailer for season four of The Chosen, and I am now expecting a really big check in the mail to our church um, just for a lot of money because they used my phrase multiple times of saying the beginning of the end. And so I have written a, a, a letter to them just saying, hey, um, I know you guys must have caught my sermon last week somehow, and I, I expect some royalties coming our way. Okay, no, I did not. No, I did not necessarily come up with that, but it was just funny that they see the same thing. Like, this is the beginning of the end, this time in Jesus' uh, ministry and in his life. All right, and so last week we looked at this turning point that really starts the beginning of the end. And it's when Lazarus is raised from the dead. This is the moment that the religious leaders say, okay, we need to figure something out. We need to do something. He needs to die. And they start planning Jesus' death. And so that is the beginning of the end. And the rest of this, Jesus knows he is moving closer and closer to God's plan for him as he moves closer to Jerusalem. All right, so uh, we are planning on skipping some of the more well-known stories in this series. Um, but today, as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, he has to go through a city named Jericho. All right, and Jericho is kind of a, a, a big deal. It's not Jerusalem, but it's a big city. All right, it's a very important center for commerce. It is a hub for trade routes from Jerusalem. King Herod had a place in Jericho. Uh, and actually, at one point, Mark Antony uh, gave Jericho, I don't know if it's actually his to give or not, but gave it to Cleopatra. Okay, as like a present. So like this city is kind of a big deal. Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, walks through this city. Okay, and so you know like if you have a big city and then you have a big name, famous person like Jesus walking through, there's going to be a lot going on. People trying to crowd around, wanting to see him, wanting to meet him, uh, all sorts of different things. All right, so have this in mind as we read our passage today. Uh, I want to just say let's, let's be ready to be challenged today, just like every single week, all right? Um, I have to kind of remind myself to not slip into an attitude where I'm just going to church. Uh, instead, that I'm here to focus on God, to allow him to radically change me from the inside out, all right? I want the inside to change, not just my actions, okay? I want the actions to be a result of what God is doing inside of me, okay? And that's something that we can, we can get mixed up really often, we just start trying to change all of our actions, the way we talk, the things we do, without ever addressing what's happening inside. And so today, this morning, let's just kind of prepare ourselves for that, all right? Uh, would you stand with me if you're willing, if you're able, would you stand? I want to read through this passage uh, and then pray and we will move on here. So we are in Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. 
He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. God, we just pray, um, Lord, this morning as we gather, Lord, that our attention would be on you. God, I pray that we would be encouraged by this time. We would be drawn together just as a community. Lord, and and we just, we give you permission right now just to begin to work in each one of our hearts. God, remove the things that are there that that you don't want. Lord, and, and replace them with what you want us to have. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So Zacchaeus, uh, poor guy, he gets mentioned just here in Scripture. And it's a really cool story. He responds to God in an amazing way. Um, we, don't, we don't really see this type of response to Jesus uh, almost anywhere else. Like I, I'm a, I am blown away by the heart change and life change that happens. And you would think that this would grant him a place in people's minds where when they think of Zacchaeus, they think of radical life change and obedience and extreme generosity and reconciliation. Um, like to the point where you'd think there should be songs about Zacchaeus. And some of you are laughing because you get this. And you know what? There are songs about him. But not for what I think he wanted to be remembered for. Like you see this amazing story of life change. All these things. Can you imagine this? And he's sitting there. He's like, oh, this amazing like, step that happened. And then 2,000 years later, you have kids gathered together singing songs about Zacchaeus. And the song is, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Like, can it, honestly, I feel bad for the guy. Like, you're like, he has this amazing life change moment. And he is infamous in song for how short he is. All right? And I just, so that, that's always the first place my mind goes when I hear Zacchaeus. Who grew up, like, singing that song? Maybe you know what I'm talking about. I know not all of us did, but some of you are like, yep, I can remember that one. All right? Um, this story, though, is great. This is one of my favorites. It pulls together several themes uh, that Luke uh, often tries to talk about. All right, it pulls together the problem of riches and what we are supposed to do with it. Like the last chapter was the story of the rich man who comes and says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And so like Luke is talking about this, this problem of like riches, and it, it pulls that in. It has the theme of Jesus relating with uh, and spending time with sinners or people that, uh, that others would be like, why are you hanging out with them? And then it, it has uh, this faith that recognizes Jesus for who he is, and when that happens, that there's life change as a result of it. Okay, and so in order to understand this story better, though, we have to understand Zacchaeus' job 
and position and how those were seen in that world. Okay, and I'm going to go quick. I know some of you guys are like, I already kind of know some of this, all right? But this is necessary for our understanding of what's happening. Now, Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. Taxes were done differently in the Roman Empire. Uh, I don't think any of us like taxes nowadays either. All right, so it, it was hated then as well. That's kind of the same. All right, but there, there was less of a system or a formula. And some of you are like, that's saying something, because I don't feel like there's a very good formula anymore either. All right, but there was even less of a formula. Um, and in the Roman Empire, uh, it was broken into smaller regions, and each region would basically be assigned an amount that they had to pay in taxes. That whole area, like, okay, hey, you're this area, you owe us this much money. And then what would happen is you would have a magistrate or a wealthy person, an aristocrat, like however you want to phrase it, they would probably be put in charge of being like, okay, your area needs to pay this much taxes, right? And that always ends well. Put the really rich person in charge of money, of how everyone needs to pay this. And so this is kind of what happens. Like they would go around and they would collect taxes. They would hire people to collect taxes. And that person would go up and they would just kind of assess an estimate like, ah, we think that you're worth this much. You need to pay this much money. And so they would go around, they would collect these taxes. And now at the end of it, they just had one bill that they had to send to Rome. And so if they didn't collect enough taxes, that rich, wealthy person who's in charge, they're going to be on the hook for that difference and have to send that money off to Rome. On the other side, if they collect too much in taxes, they don't have to send all of it. They just have to send what Rome has asked. So it's this nice little way for them to kind of make a little bit more money, quite a bit more money. And so they would tax people and they would often tax them substantially more than what was needed because it was a way for them to make more money. All right, and, and so all of this kind of comes together, and you have, you have Jericho, this area. It's big enough that you don't just have like one or two tax collectors. You have this whole group of them, and then you have Zacchaeus. He is the chief tax collector, and every time this happens, every time money is exchanging hands, there is some that's going to go missing, right? So the first guy goes and collects taxes, and Zacchaeus says, hey, I'm the chief tax collector. You need to go get this much money today. Go collect this much. Okay, I'll just use dollars right now to make it easy. If he says, hey, go collect $1,000. Well, if that tax collector goes and collects 1200 he only has to give 1000 to Zacchaeus. And maybe Zacchaeus said, I need 1000 but actually he only had to give 700 And so you can see how everybody is siphoning off some money as this goes. And so the chief tax collector, he is the one that really stands to make the most money, all right, in this whole thing. And so this is, it is beyond being a shady enterprise, all right? And it it was shady among the Roman lands to begin with, but that's not where this story is. This this story is in an occupied area. And so they're going to be even stricter, even harsher in these areas, but they're hiring locals to do it. All right, so now you have an occupying government that you can't stand, and they are taking everything away, all of your freedoms, your culture, everything like that. They are taxing you and cheating you on it, but now they have hired your friends and your neighbors, other Jewish people, to do it. 
It's one thing when your enemy is stabbing you in the back. You kind of expect that. It's another thing when your next door neighbor is the one doing it for your enemy. And Zacchaeus, he, he is the chief among this operation. So he was unpopular, as you can imagine. And if people got the chance, like a tax collector might be severely injured, hurt, even killed. Uh, you had the zealots, which was like a political group at this time, where they were not afraid to kill people in the name of trying to get their land back. And so a zealot and a tax collector, like that would be a bad situation. Which is funny, actually, that then one of Jesus' disciples is a tax collector, and one of his disciples is a zealot. If you read through that, it's, it's amazing how he brings these people together. All right, but he was, he was unpopular. Now, in the Jewish law, tax collectors were actually classified with robbers. If you look through some of the Jewish law on this, they could not be a witness like in a court. They, they were thought to be so untrustworthy that they could not, in a, in a legal court, you know, if you were brought before the Sanhedrin or anything like that, you could not be a witness if you were a tax collector. All right? Their money actually was not accepted by charity. They basically were like, your money is all evil, it's corrupted, and we, we, won't, we won't take your money. Which is interesting because we see this happen here in this story. So you can see how like Zacchaeus, from society's viewpoint, he's, he's a sleazebag. All right? He is, I was trying to think of this, like, he, he would be like the equivalent, I feel like, almost like a corrupt cop or authority figure who is lining their pockets with your money. And the reason why I use that example is just because, like, what do you do in that situation? Who do you go to? There's nobody to go to. And so, like, in this situation, he is, he's cheating people, but they, they can't do anything about it. So society views him, he, he's terrible. From a national Jewish standpoint, he's a traitor to his people. He has aligned himself with the enemy that they are trying to get rid of, the people who are persecuting them. From a religious view, he is terrible. He is like beyond reconciliation. Their own law talks about this type of person being categorized you know, as untrustworthy and not on, on par with a regular person. What's funny in all this is Zacchaeus' name actually means pure righteous one. And so people like see him and he's just this like joke of like, you just, can you, can you transport yourself with me into what you would be feeling in this moment? I actually, today I'm not even going to have any other slides. I want us to just try and like get the feeling of what that would be like. Can you think of somebody in your life, maybe you know them, maybe you just know of them, that you would maybe kind of view in this type of a way? I'm not saying that's healthy, but okay, so the easy low-hanging fruit in this is whatever political party you kind of align yourself with, think of the person who is the face of the other one, all right? Like this is kind of like your, your feelings, your view of like, I just don't want to be anywhere near this guy. I see Zacchaeus coming down the street. I will literally take a detour that is going to cause me, you know, five extra minutes of walking just so I don't have to walk past this person. That's, that's how I feel about him. And if you are in Jericho and you're trying to make up your mind of whether Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the one who's come to save you or not, when you watch Jesus interact with this guy and choose to go to his house, 
in that moment, you are probably thinking, there's no way this guy's the Messiah. No way that the Messiah would be going to that person's house. And what I love about this is like, what we see at the end, we see Jesus' mission to come to seek and save the lost. His mission was so important that he did not care what others were even going to think in that moment. He saw Zacchaeus and he just went after him. And we should have the story of the prodigal son in our heads uh, as we kind of read this. Zacchaeus being the son who has wandered far away and the people taking on the role of the older brother who are complaining and grumbling that the father would accept this wayward son back into the family. And now we, so we move to Jesus going to his house, which, which no doubt his house would be very nice. It would be big. It would be lavish in comparison to others. Um, and we don't see anything about the meal or the gathering. But instead, we jump right into Zacchaeus responding to Jesus. We see him call Jesus Lord. And the word that he uses here in Greek, and we've talked about this word before, is kyrios. All right, and this is the word that they would use to talk about Caesar. This was a, a heavy word. If you called anybody else Kyrios, I mean, this could be, you could get in serious trouble, you could be killed. Because that's only reserved for Caesar. And Zacchaeus, he sees Jesus in this way. And so his response, we notice him recognizing um, Jesus in a, in a very dramatic way. Then Zacchaeus says, I will give away half my wealth to the poor and then pay back. Anyone I've cheated. All right, now, if anyone has ever done math with money and, like, percentages, it matters what order you do these things in. He is not paying back people four times and then giving away half. That would actually cause him to give away less. He is giving away half of his money, and then the remaining 50%, he's like, I'm going to pay back anyone I've cheated, which I think we can safely say is, is most of the city. Because he is just, he has corrupted this in so many ways as a chief tax collector. And he says, I'm going to pay them back four times. And the Jewish law actually said, if you, if you, corrupt, if you were corrupt and you cheated someone like this, you would have paid them back what you owed them plus 20%. So you would have paid back 120%. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back 400% of what I have taken from people. And this is, this is like this amazing, like if you had any doubt of Zacchaeus' heart in this instance, if you were sitting there just thinking, ah, he's just paying lip service to Jesus, like this type of action w would wipe any of that away. To go from a place of having all of this, like his love for God, for Jesus, is being demonstrated through his love for others. And his life is going to drastically change. His way of life, the way, his comfort level, like he would be seriously reduced in his circumstances from this instance on. And what we see here is like repentance in general, um, but especially in Jewish culture, it wasn't something that you just said with your mouth. It's not just saying I'm sorry. It, was, it involved restoration. It involved making amends and, and truly reconciling the wrong that you have done. And that's what he's doing with his actions here. And sort of like how saying the words, you know, I'm sorry, is not a full apology. And some of you, you have people in your life where you're like, I don't really even accept the words I'm sorry from that person anymore. Because it's lost all meaning. Because every time they screw up, they just say the words I'm sorry, but then the next day it's going to be the same thing over and over and over. Like there, there is, when you talk about truly repenting of something, there is something so much bigger than just words. 
you know, a true apology. You know, if you've ever heard like the four-step apology, you need to say that you're sorry. You need to acknowledge specifically what you're actually apologizing for. Okay? Uh, it recognizes how the other person is feeling and why they're feeling that way, the way that you hurt them. And then at the end it says, you know what, and I'm going to do my best to not do this again. I don't know if you've ever been in that spot. I had, I had one person at, at a point in my life, they were a coworker, where they, they said, I'm sorry, and I don't know if this was very Christian-like or not, but I just, I was like, nope. I don't accept it because you've said that same word every single week for the last two years. Like I, I will accept an apology when your actions are lined up with this and you're actually trying to not do this again. Now the hard thing with Zacchaeus is we only are seeing this single moment. Could Zacchaeus just be doing this singular moment of Jesus is here, I better get my act together. I better try and do everything that I'm supposed to. But, but I think what we see here is a massive shift of values. And actually church history would say the same thing. Scripture doesn't talk about Zacchaeus again. But Clement of Alexandria, he's a, he's a father of the church, talks about how it was thought that Zacchaeus actually became a church leader in Caesarea. That he continued down this path and moved in this direction. It's, it's this true change. And Jesus responds to this repentance by saying, Today salvation has come to this house, and this man is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus was cast out from the Jewish family. We should be seeing the, the parable of the prodigal son. This should be fresh in our mind as we see this. And Jesus is always doing this. He's grabbing people who the collective Jewish people have cast out of the family and he's bringing them back in. They've been ostracized for some reason. Jesus pulls them back in. It's like the woman who was bleeding, who couldn't be part of the, of the Jewish people as long as she had that sickness, and Jesus pulls her back in. It's like the lepers who are living in their own society outside of town because they can't be with everybody else. And Jesus goes and he touches them and he heals them and he pulls them back in. It's, it's the tax collectors that he pulls into one of his 12 disciples. It's the children that the disciples are trying to push away and say, hey, don't be bothering Jesus right now. And he says, no, let them come because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God belongs to people like this. And Jesus is pulling people back into where they belong, into the family. It doesn't matter that Zacchaeus was the worst of the worst in pretty much everyone's eyes. No one is too far that the grace of God can't reach them. Listen, the, the, the story of the Bible, the focus of this story, Jesus will always want to have a relationship with you. The prerequisite for Zacchaeus here wasn't how holy he was. It wasn't how much he understood. It wasn't that he didn't have any doubts in life or doubts in God. It was that he, he it wasn't that he like fit this perfect little mold of what a follower of Jesus or what a Jewish person was. It was simply that he seemed to be the most open person there. He seemed to be the one that was most hungry for a new life. Remember, when he couldn't see Jesus, he runs ahead. And the word that they use there for run, like it is, it is run. 
That's not just like a saying of like, ah, he went ahead or he, he had gone on ahead. He ran. That's not common in that time, especially for someone of any wealth. Like this is, this is debasing yourself by running through the streets. He ran ahead, climbs a tree. He had this hunger, this desperation for something. Some of us, I think, have spent so long running from God. Like, let me just tell you, as you run, he is running right behind you. And he's just waiting for you to stop running so that he can overtake you and just say, hey, I'm, I'm here. I love you. I want to have this relationship with you. And we don't, have to, we don't have to have everything figured out. God doesn't force anything on us. He allows us to bring our anger and our hurt and our frustration and our doubts and our, our dislike for organized religion and the church. We can bring all of that with us. And listen, the, the church needs to do a better job of letting people uh, come walking in like right where they are. We run the risk of being the crowd that is grumbling about Jesus spending time with other people that we don't like otherwise. The church must become the means for restoring the lost and rejected by seeking them out, not by remaining isolated from them. But too often the church has made the error of separating ourselves from the world in a way where we lose all contact with people that need Jesus the most. All right, sometimes it's, it's done with uh, an attempted like, good motive of saying, hey, I need to be healthy enough, I need to be strong enough to stand firm in the midst of situations that will pull on me. Like, I, If someone is, is recovering from different substance abuse or if someone is a recovering alcoholic, like, they should not be like, okay, I've got a week of sobriety here, I'm going to go back to the bars and reach people for Jesus. <laughs> We'd be like, okay, pump the brakes. Let's like get our feet under us. Let's make sure we're in a healthy spot. Let's make sure we can handle this. You know, and so there are moments where maybe we need to step away from people in our life. And I've had to do this. I had to step away from one of my best friends because every time I was with them, I just made the worst decisions that there was. But I'll tell you what, down the road, we were able to like come back together. He ended up being like the best man at, at Emily's and my wedding. Like it just was this amazing thing. But I had to realize that it wasn't him. It was me. I was too weak. And I just, I needed to have that separation. Sometimes we do that. But lots of times, lots of times, we end up with this idea of superiority. That we're too good to spend time with that person anymore. We're too holy. And we just, we aren't going to do it. And we separate ourselves. And what we see in this story and what I see through scripture is that there's just very few things that are more or that are less Christ-like than that. In college, I was working at a pizzeria uh, managing one downtown Minneapolis and I had been getting to know the guys I was working with a little bit better. And I just started to pray and I was like, God, I would love to have a way to get to know them better, to invest in their life more. And ultimately, I, I would love to be able to share what you've done in my life with them. And I was praying about this. And uh, about a month later, we are getting ready to finish up work. And we closed at like 1 a.m. on a weeknight, which meant that we were done like cleaning up at about 2. Um, and I had class at 7.30. All right, so that was, it was a brutal season. And these guys come up to me and they say, hey, we're hanging out after work tonight. Oh, okay. We'd love for you to come. All right, 
We're going to the casino. At the time, I'm like studying to be a pastor, and I'm sure I had signed something at this school saying I wouldn't go gamble or whatever else. And I'm like, okay, God, I, I've been praying for this opportunity. And I was like, all right, let's go. I'm in. <laughs> let's go do this. And I remember just like having, having this evening where I just got to spend time with them, like get to know them better, not be about work, and, and invest in their life. And it was just this amazing opportunity. All right, and you know, for me, I was like, all right, I'm bringing 50 bucks and I'm spending that and then I'm done. You know, meanwhile, these other guys, they're going back to the ATM like all night long. And I'm like, okay, I'm not doing that. All right, because I'm just going to spend 50 bucks and we're going to call it good. And it, it just was, it was one of those nights that I think it changed more in me and my heart for the people around me than anything else. I want to encourage you, like where in your life are you rubbing shoulders with people that need Jesus? Because I think often our natural human instinct is, is, is to pull away in these types of situations. What areas are you in close relationship how could God begin to use you to speak into their lives? And not in an arrogant way, not in a superior way, not in a pushy way, but just by spending time investing in them as people and loving them. This is a big thing, I think, for us as we read through this story. Now, here's the other part of this for us today. I would venture to guess that most of us here have something in our life that we've done wrong, and we could probably benefit from admitting those wrongs to the people that we've hurt. Again, our natural human instinct is to pull away, to avoid things we've done wrong, to downplay and minimize our own actions and the way that we have hurt others, to not take responsibility for it. But a transformed faith that has encountered Jesus does the opposite. It has integrity. It admits when we have fallen short. It brings health into a situation. There are so many marriages that are severely damaged by an unwillingness to admit when you are wrong. All right, and this, this goes beyond marriages. This goes into every single relationship. Or maybe we need to have, have that, like, admitting wrong and repentance with God. Maybe there are things in our life that we need to bring to God and say, God, I, I've been doing this wrong. And we need to get better at confession and repentance. And true repentance results in a complete change of direction, not just change of actions. All right, and like I said, we don't get to hear any more about Zacchaeus, but, but church history would tell us that this was true repentance that started an entire new course for his life. All right, and I think oftentimes we read the story in the Bible and we think that that's the whole story. Like, that's Zacchaeus' story. The reality is his story started after Jesus left Jericho. And how he decided to live out his life every single day after that. Everybody in town knew what he used to be like. Then they knew that Jesus went to his house. Now the story begins. How is he going to live his life after encountering Jesus? And you and I have the exact same situation. How are we going to live our life? Your story as a follower of Jesus is not about Sundays. Sundays are great. Sundays are important. But this is not your story. 
of what Jesus is doing in your life. Your story starts when we leave here. Your story starts tomorrow when you go to work. Your story starts this afternoon spending time with your family. Like that's, that's where we see what this response to Jesus really comes through as. And so I want to just challenge us with that. Worship team, would you guys come? Why don't you guys stand? Whether you've made a life-changing decision to, to follow Jesus before or not, like every single day we need to wake up and we need to have some type of a course correction in our life. All right, this is every single one of us, you, me, all of us. Because our natural inclination in life is to drift. You know where you should be headed. You know what you want to be doing. But every single day, we drift. And the first day that we drift is not that major. You just see a little bit of a drift. But staying on that same drifting course two days, three days later, three weeks later, three months later, we have drifted further than we thought we would. And so every single day we wake up and we say, all right, Jesus, I, I have experienced you in a life-changing way. What does my story look like because of that? How am I going to respond because of that? And I'm not saying you have to go pay back someone 400% of maybe something you, you cheated them on or something. But like, what, what does that type of response look like? Okay, let's let remove the financial side of it. If you have hurt somebody, okay, what is typical restoration, reconciliation, apology? What does that look like from our culture? What does it look like to do 400% of that? They're expecting you to come back and say, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it again. Would you forgive me? That's what they're expecting. How do you go four times beyond that and say, listen, I have messed up and I, I, need, I need you to realize that I am sorry and I, I need to change the way that I'm doing this. How do we do that with God? Because every single one of us has those moments. We have, we've screwed up and we need to do that. And so we are called to respond in a similar fashion to Jesus in the same way that Zacchaeus did. So we're going to go into a response time here. Pastor Aaron's going to come. We're going to have prayer team around. Um, she's going to come and just kind of lead us in a prayer as we go into this time. And we're going to sing one last song together before we take off. And I want to encourage you, just take this time to really kind of process through that same question.